welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Community Church. This is our last one in our mental health series. It's a privilege to finish it off. Tim Barton's led the charge. Or should I call him Timmy Barton, Phil? I'm not sure. Not sure on our names anymore. So, um, so Tim Barton's been leading the, the first few of these. I'm just going to finish it off today. And I'm going to take us on a little bit of a different tack. Most of, um, most of what Tim's been leading us through has been... Um, uh, well, it's been all kinds of things, but really helping, I, I guess, addressed more to us as who struggle with our mental health, you know, to the concern with the, the people. Um, and so in the first week, talking about why all this matters anyway, and that we're created holistic beings with mind as a part of who we're made to be, and then talk about how God suffers with us uh, in our mental health struggles and, and what the Bible has to speak to some of that. And then last week, it was practically help, helpful stuff on kind of how we respond to those who um, have mental ill health. Today, I'm going to shift us a little bit to think more about us as a community. And um, rather than talking particularly about kind of what we do when we struggle with our mental health in all these different ways, I'm going to talk about um, yeah, how we live as a community and how that might speak to uh, mental health and its issues. You may remember in Tim's opening talk in this series, he quoted uh, the psychotherapist Gabor Mate, who uh, said this. I think I've put the quote on the screen for you. Gabor Mate writes that the world into which kids are being born these days might as well have been designed to promote disruptions of cognitive function and emotional self-regulation. Everything I have seen tells me that we're witnessing a sea change in children's mental well-being. So Marte's claim is that what's normal in our culture, the way the majority of us live week in and week out, is bad for our mental health. I mean, he's talking particularly about children, but you can extend it to adults as well. So for Marte, the kind of mental health crisis that we have at the moment is no surprise. He, he would argue this is the kind of inevitable result of the normal ways that we're living. Uh, in other words, kind of what's normal in our culture is neither good nor healthy for us. And as Christians, we perhaps shouldn't be too surprised at this. Um, again, as Tim talked about in that first week, uh, we know that we live in a fallen world. We know that things are not as they were meant to be. We know that our choice as humanity, to live our own ways and to turn away from God's ways will inevitably bring suffering. That as we live ways we were never designed to live, uh, we will inevitably suffer in some ways for that. God's ways um, are not just good in some arbitrary sense, that you kind of got five options of ways that you could live and God just picks one at random and says, that's the one we'll call good and we'll call the other ones bad. But the ways that God calls good are the ways that are in line with who we're created to be. And that's why they're good. So, um, yeah, when we live out of kilter with our design, we suffer. So part of what it means to be the church then, part of what it means to be us, is to be a group of people who are trying to pursue the ways God calls us to live, rather than necessarily what is normal in our world. 
if Mate is right, and I, I think he is, then our current culture is pretty much set up to erode our mental well-being. And part of what the church is called to be is to be a counterculture, to be a group of people that form a different culture where we pursue the ways God commands us to live and therefore live differently from the world. And as we do say, we can expect that that will have a positive impact on our collective mental health. Every part of us should overall grow more healthy the more we pursue the ways God's designed us to live. Now, what I'm not saying, to be really clear and qualify that, what I'm not saying is that if we're living as proper Christians, we should never struggle with our mental health. I'm not saying that. I hope you've heard that loud and clear through the whole series that we are very much not saying that. Mental health is complex. What goes on in each individual is complex. Nor am I saying that if any church community could ever be perfect, kind of super healthy at all times, then that would solve all our mental health issues by our idyllic ways of living. I'm not saying that either. The church will never be perfect until Jesus comes again. We will always suffer until Jesus comes again, including in our mental health. But what I am claiming is that we have a chance as the church and as a local church to pursue a culture amongst ourselves that is different from the normal culture of the world. We can, with the help of the Holy Spirit, create a different normal for us that will have an impact on our mental well-being as a community. So what I want to do this morning is just go through uh, three different areas uh, and first kind of discuss what's normal in our culture and the ways that that is detrimental to our mental health. And then describe a little bit the, the way that the church is called to live. And I hope that we could maybe just imagine together this morning, like, what if we were able to live differently in these ways? What if we could be a strong counterculture that fights against the norms of our culture that are harming us by the grace of God? There's a really big risk in doing this, which I'm horribly aware of. And that is that when I talk about the things that we do in our culture that are not good for us, I'm going to be describing things that you and I probably do. Because none of us escapes our culture. We're in it, aren't we? We're shaped by it. <clears throat> and so doing that, the risk is that we may feel judged or condemned, because I might start talking about stuff and I might be describing kind of some of the ways that your life is. That's not my intention this morning, to judge or to condemn anyone. I'm aware that some of the things I'm talking about are a problem in my life as well, because I'm in my, my culture and shaped by it. I'm aware that it's doing me harm, but I'm still in it. Say. So, in talking about these things, I just want to say that at the start. Like, I'm not here to throw stones. There's no judgment or condemnation here. But what I do want together is for us to face the truth. To face up together to what the norms of our culture are doing to us. And to dream together about a different way of life that might set us free 
So I hope that's really clear. But if, as I go through, you know, you start to feel angry at me, then come and chat at the end and, and, um, and hopefully I can put anything right that you, that you hear negatively this morning. So the first area I want to talk about is the area of identity. These are the three I'm going to go through. A different approach to identity, relationships at time. We'll start with identity. And um, this involves looking at one of the stories that our con- culture is constantly telling us about ourselves. I'm going to call it the identity story for shorthand this morning. Now, um, in our whole church teaching next year, we're going to take a lot of time to, dis- to talk a lot more about some of the stories our culture tells and to explore those and to respond to those. So there's going to be a lot more detail on this sort of stuff then. For now, I just want to do a short little sketch of of, um, our culture story of identity. And I want us to see that when our culture talks to us about our identity, the story it tells us is that this is something that we create, that we create our identity. And um, the thing that I always think of when I think of this is uh, a song by... Uh, a band I like to listen to called Incubus, which is quite an old band now. And Stace is nodding. I was, like, I was expecting zero people to know that. <laughs> Possibly Darren, I thought, might know Incubus. Darren, where is he? Do you know, do you know Incubus? Yeah, you go. Two. Oh, Thomas as well. This is a good morning. Three people. So Incubus is a band that I like. And they did a song called Make Yourself. And some of the lyrics were explicit, so I'm not putting those ones up. But I put up the ones that I can on the screen. So this is a little extract of the lyrics from Make Yourself. Um, If I hadn't made me, I would have been made somehow. If I hadn't assembled myself, I'd have fallen apart by now. If I hadn't made me, I'd be more inclined to bow. Powers that be would have swallowed me up, but that's more than I can allow. Message, I either make myself or I'm going to be made by other people, and that's bad. So the chorus... The first half I've left out for parental reasons. The second half, if you really want to live, if you really want life, try and make yourself. Make yourself. This is the message. So it came across loud to me on Incubus, but that story is told every day in our culture. Your identity is about who you are on the inside. And how you feel about who you are on the inside is the most important thing about you. And no one else should shape that. You have to be authentic to who you truly are. And that story is told so much that as I repeat it now, you might be thinking, yeah, well, what's wrong with that? Of course, we should be authentic to who we are on the inside. Well, there's many things that are wrong with that that we're going to explore in depth next year. But for this morning, we're focusing particularly on the impact of this message on our mental health. If we believe that I am whoever I make myself to be, then that puts all the pressure on me. Whether I succeed or fail in life is on me. When things are going well, I might be okay, although I'm likely to be perpetually insecure. I might be okay. But what do I do when I'm not happy about myself? Or when things go wrong? What if I don't like myself? Well, the story of my culture tells me that's my problem. I'm required to make myself. 
if I don't think I'm much good, then it's probably my fault. If I don't feel good enough, then really, probably I'm not good enough. Others have made themselves better than I've made myself. I have to have the answers to these kind of problems. And this is where the kind of huge hole in all our culture's pretty meaningless talk about self-esteem is. Okay? We're all told all the time that we need to have high self-esteem. And we're never told what the basis for our self-esteem is. Believe in your own value. Believe how precious you are. But why? On what basis am I valuable? What is it that gives me value? If I'm only what I make myself, then what am I meant to do when I feel worthless? And not only do I have to make my own identity, which is crushing enough, but according to our culture, I also have to make my own truth. Don't let anyone else decide what's true. What's true is what's true for you. The lie is this gives you freedom. It doesn't give you freedom. It puts a massive burden on your back. What's good in life? You have to decide. What's a worthwhile career? You have to decide. Is there a God? You decide. Does life have a meaning? Yeah, it has whatever meaning you want to give it. That's our culture. And it means that the pressure of defining reality is on you. There's no truth other than what you choose to be true. So again, if life doesn't work out, if you feel meaningless, purposeless, well, it's down to you to generate some meaning and some purpose in life. It's on your shoulders. This is a disaster for our mental health. Which of us is sufficient to define reality? Like, who, who, who's got the skills to do that? Which of us is sufficient to define what is true? The weight of the world is literally on us to define what's real and true and meaningful and worthwhile and to make something of yourself. And the biblical worldview is so different. The biblical worldview, the Christian worldview, is that our identity isn't something we can make ourselves because it's given to us by the God who creates us. And what this means is when I feel utterly worthless, I can know that I'm not worthless because my worth isn't something that I create. Anything I create might well be worthless. But I don't create myself. My identity is given to me. I don't need self-esteem in the plastic cultural sense because my self-worth is grounded in having been created on purpose by God. I'm his idea. So it's a bad idea. At least it's his bad idea. Truth stands outside of me. It's defined by the reality of God. And that means that no matter how confused I am, no matter how upside down my life is, no matter how lost I get, there is a truth that is there. And by the grace of God, I can discover that truth. I don't have to make it. I can find it. Or perhaps better put, God in his grace, can reveal to me what's truly true. So truth also comes as a gift rather than something that's on me. And that means that my identity 
and the truth about life are far more solid than how I feel. My feelings can go haywire and I can still be on solid ground. I can learn to live with the grain of reality rather than constantly working hard to create some unreality that I'm expected to live in. Say, I hope that's not too ethereal. I think this is like really real, day in, day out, of why many of us struggle. And so this is a part of our calling as the church. That's the difference. A part of our calling is that when the world tells us, make yourself, we say to one another, no, you've already been made. When the world tells us, give yourself meaning and values and purpose, we say, no, we've been given meaning and value and purpose. When the world says, you decide what you want to be true, we say, no, thanks, we prefer to live in reality where God defines what's true and helps me to discover it. That's the kind of culture I think that we can help one another to create with the help of the Holy Spirit. The the kind of culture where we teach one another, like that song we often sing, um, you know, I am who you say I am. It's a different epistemology, it's a different way of knowing. I'm not I am who I've chosen to be, no. I am who God says I am. He defines me. And if we can do this, we will create a counterculture where we can be safe, where we can find rest in the reality of an identity that's given to us by God, which will be a whole lot better for our mental health. So that's the first area. Um, Yeah, the next two are a bit more kind of um, practical, I guess. That's a silly thing to say. They're equally practical, all three. But the second area I want to talk about then is the area of relationships. Um, And I'm going to split relationships into two parts. I'm going to talk about marriage, sex, and parenting. And then we're going to talk about uh, how we approach people who harm us. And in both these areas... There's a strong story in our culture that's shaping us. And uh, again, it looks to me like a story that's set up to cause us mental ill health. So first, we're going to touch on marriage, sex, and family. And uh, look at this other story. This is another story our culture tells it. I'll call this one the happiness story. The last one was the identity story. This one's the happiness story. And the happiness story goes like this in these three points. Feeling happy and satisfied is the most important thing in life. They're really um, kind of radical move over the last hundred years, ever since the sexual revolution onwards, is point two, which is that says that happiness is to be identified with sex and romantic relationships. We've been telling that story for about a hundred years now. And um, increasingly, Point three has come to the fore, that traditional family units, traditional ways of seeing sex and marriage and relationships are a barrier to getting the kind of relationships and the kind of sex that will fulfill you and make you happy, which is your greatest good. And that story is told 101 ways every week of our lives. 
As I say, we're going to elaborate these stories next year, so I'm not going to elaborate it at length now. What I want to note this morning is the impact of this in our culture. What has been the impact of telling this story over the last hundred years from the kind of sexual revolution onwards? Well, um, I came across an interesting article that The Guardian ran um, in 2022 in the wake of when we signed into law no-fault divorces. So in the UK, no-fault divorces came into law last year. And The Guardian ran an article drawing on some large-scale research on values and beliefs across all kinds of different uh, countries. And this research showed that the UK is now... Um, one of the top three or four world leaders in the acceptance of casual sex, abortion, and divorce as morally unproblematic. Those are kind of our, our values. We are among the top few countries in the world holding those beliefs and those values now. And if those are our values as a culture, it's not much of a surprise then when we see that nearly half of children don't live with both their parents for at least some of their childhood. That every other child we have in our nation grows up without living with mum or dad, at least at some point. 23% of our families are lone parent families at any one time, but if you take a six-year period, it's a third. A third of our families are are single-parent families. Over 40% of our marriages end in divorce. And I want to read you some extracts from some research papers uh, produced by the Centre for Social Justice. Now, Centre for Social Justice isn't a Christian organisation. It's a political think tank um, that has done a lot of work, particularly on the family. And the Centre for Social Justice reports point out that uh, this le- the level of family breakdown that we see in the UK isn't inevitable in modern society. They kind of point to other developed countries and say, well, in other countries, kind of 84, 85% of kids live with both their parents for their childhood. The UK is far, far below that. They write that Britain is fast becoming a world leader in family breakdown. Why does this matter for our mental health? Because one of their reports says this, family breakdown in all its forms is strongly associated with poor mental health in adults and children. The role family breakdown plays in the causes of mental disorder is frequently unacknowledged, but recent research highlights the association between mental illness and coming from fractured dysfunctional and fatherless families. The recent Good Childhood Inquiry report concluded that mental health problems are on the increase and cited poor parenting, either a lack of affection or the failure to show authority and set boundaries as a significant contributing factor. Family breakdown and conflict were considered by the inquiry to have the biggest adverse impact on children's well-being, the biggest of all factors, The inquiry found that children with parents in conflict or separated single or step-parents are significantly more likely to fail at school, have low self-esteem, struggle with peer relationships, have behavioural difficulties, anxiety or depression. Now, again, I am not condemning anyone in the room or listening to this who's in these situations. 
okay? Life is complex. Each of our stories is complex. I am not throwing stones. I'm really not. But we have to face the truth that family breakdown is a huge contributor to our mental ill health. And the values and beliefs of our culture, the the happiness story, is designed to contribute to family breakdown. And the priorities of successive governments are doing no help either. Most help for families is generally about getting parents into work, whether that's limiting benefits for um, if you have more than two children, whether that's increasing free childcare, whether there's all these... I'm not commenting on the political dimensions of those decisions. What I'm commenting on is that the communication is the value is placed on helping families by making sure parents are economically active rather than helping families in terms of how they raise their kids and supporting parents in that. That's our culture. That's like what we're living in. The important thing is that you feel happy and that means that you feel sexually and relationally satisfied. So divorce is fine. Casual sex is fine. Abortion is fine. Whatever kind of relational world you want is fine. There's no moral law, of course. Don't forget that because you're making your own truth. So there's no moral law. You do what you like. And we'll just try and make sure that you can keep working and keep the kind of ship afloat. That's our culture, which equals massive family breakdown, which equals massive mental health challenges. Again, how different the biblical worldview is. In the biblical worldview, sex is a gift that is reserved only for the covenant commitment of marriage. And that covenant commitment is till death do we part. That means that in the biblical worldview, children are to be born into the safety and stability of a marriage covenant and nowhere else. And these children are then not seen as an economic inconvenience, but they're a blessing and a priority. One of the most precious and weighty duties placed upon any man or woman is the duty of parenthood. And in all of this, our story as the church is that our fulfillment and our happiness is not primarily delivered through sex and through romantic relationships. So we're not slaves to our desires, the desires that can tear our families apart. This is our story. This is the biblical worldview. Happiness and satisfaction matter, but they come from the God who made you. I hope you can see the contrast. It's pretty obvious. And I'm not saying that Christians get this right all the time. Of course they don't. Like, like if you've been in the church five minutes, you'll realise that's the case. We sin. Tragedy strikes. Our families do not turn out in the idyllic manner that it might have sounded like I've just described. God's working on us as well. But we do have a chance together to create a different culture about these things. 
a strong counterculture that says, no, I don't believe the happiness story and I'm not going to live into it. When we have a different view of sex and of marriage and of children, where we fight for families and we strengthen them, we fight for marriage, we fight for good parenting, rather than just accepting family breakdown as both normal and morally unproblematic, we have a chance to have a different way of living amongst us. And I'm moving on now, painfully aware of how much more there is to say and how much I've left unsaid. And again, ducking behind the excuse that next year we'll talk about this a lot more. But I hope um, to have at least shown how important this is. Again, it's a truth I want us to face. Okay. So moving on from marriage and sex and family, the second relational issue I want to talk about much more briefly is the one of forgiveness. How we deal with those who hurt us. Uh, In our culture, my observation is that when somebody has done something wrong or harmful, there's basically two responses that we have as a culture. The first one is we excuse them. We either say, like, they didn't do it, or they did do it, but it doesn't really, didn't really hurt anyone, or, you know, we make excuses. Or we um, totally obliterate them from our lives. Those are kind of the polemic that we live in. So you'll see this um, with public figures. Where you take a politician who's done something wrong. I mean, we've got a myriad of choices to choose from, haven't we? You know, not hard to think of examples. But normally the first response is, no, they didn't do it. They didn't do that. And then it emerges that they pretty undeniably did do it. And then, well, it didn't really do any damage, though. And then it emerges that undeniably they did do damage. And if enough pressure is built up, we flip from denial to they need to resign and never be in politics again. That's how it goes, isn't it? As soon as you do something wrong, resign. Get out. I think we do this personally, a lot of us as well. When somebody does us wrong, we either kind of excuse them, ignore it. You know what I mean? Oh, they probably didn't mean to do it. Well, I'm sure they're all right, really. They haven't really hurt me too much. And then at the point it gets too much, we're like, right, delete them, delete their number, cut them out of your life, never speak to them again. People are either totally fine or we cancel them is kind of the polemic in which we live. And the tragedy of this culture is that both of those approaches destroy meaningful relationships. You can't have meaningful relationships if you deny harm that people do to you. Like if Stacey keeps hurting me and I keep saying it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, we cannot have a meaningful relationship. However, if the first time Stacey hurts me, I say, that's it, I'm never speaking to you again, we also cannot have a meaningful relationship. He did take my dried mango once. It was hard. I've, um, I've tried to confront him. I haven't confronted him. I'm doing this live. I'm just going to confront you with that. It hurt me. It's wrong. I sometimes wonder if this is what's going on. Um, sometimes people um, will, will talk about their friendlessness. You know, they don't have friends. And there can be many reasons for that, and you know. But one reason sometimes, I think, is, is living in this polemic, really, that 
Sometimes when I talk to someone more who says that, what I find out is that there's been several people they've tried to build a friendship with, but as soon as something's become difficult or they felt hurt, they've ended that friendship or given up on it. I think that's part of this, really. The whole dynamic is not good for our mental health, is it? If you're faced with the choice between either being lonely or being hurt by people, that, that's a catch-22 that's a nightmare for your mental health and your health in other ways as well, isn't it? If those are your choices, I'm either going to be lonely because I've cut people out or I'm going to let people hurt me. That looks like a deliberately designed conundrum to destroy our mental well-being. And think of it the other way around as well. If that's the world we live in, then I live in perpetual fear that as soon as I do something wrong to Stacey, he's going to cut me out. And I might really love him. He might, you know, I feel I've got a friendship there. And as soon as I make a wrong step, that's a recipe for massive anxiety. The biblical worldview is, again, so different. It's that we're called to forgiveness. And forgiveness prevents us from denying or excusing wrong. If someone hasn't done anything wrong, you've got nothing to forgive them for. We're not, if they haven't done anything wrong, we're not talking about forgiveness. Forgiveness assumes they've done something wrong. In fact, forgiveness requires us to name it, to point it out, say, this was wrong and it hurt me, to confront it. We don't deny harm. But forgiveness also says that just... When somebody harms me, that doesn't have to be the end of the relationship. Forgiveness allows our friendships to survive damage and to emerge stronger. Some, a, psycho, a, a psychologist um, we listened to in our community group said that the evidence is that relationships that have been ruptured and then healed are stronger than those that have never been ruptured. Yeah? And it makes sense, doesn't it? If me and Stacey have fallen out and been reconciled, it's stronger because I know that we can. I know that I can do wrong, but we'll be okay. Whereas if I've never been through that, I'll always be nervous that when we do wrong, it'll be over. That's what forgiveness gives us. I don't have to be anxious about always getting it right. I know my mistakes aren't the end of the story. And the church is called to this, like... My goodness, if anyone was called to this, we're called to this, aren't we? We are basically defined as the people who have been forgiven by Jesus. And he's forgiven you and me far more than we'll ever have to forgive anyone else. And he's really clear that every day we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Like if, if we're called to anything, we're called to this, aren't we? Facing the hurt, naming it, owning our bad behaviour, forgiving and asking forgiveness of one another. But if we can do this, if this can become normal for us, that is massively countercultural. And it will create a safety in our community where harm is not allowed because we name it and we deal with it. But harm is not the end of the story. And we'll be able to enjoy relationships that are healthy and secure. Which I think would make quite a bit of difference to our collective mental health. Right, last one and then I'm done. Try and speed up, sorry. I know it's been long. Time. Let's talk about time. This time I want to start with us as the church and our story, okay? Okay. Our story is that God 
who created us is the one who created the world. And he defines goodness and beauty and truth and pleasure. He's created a world for you and me to enjoy, right? He's given us bodies to enjoy physical pleasures, exercise, sport, our senses, hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling. He's given us a stunning natural world, hasn't he? The outdoors, the mountains and the seas, the rivers and the trees. He's made us creative beings to take delight in all the wide range of the arts. Reading, literature, painting, drawing, writing, music. See how happy Frankie was this morning. Do you know why? It's because he's got to play the bass. He's always on keys now. That's why he's happy. Music, construction, cooking, etc., etc. He, these things are his idea. He made us to enjoy them. Part of our worship is just enjoying the good things God gives us. He commands us to work and also to rest. He calls us to enjoy these things. So we're called to be a community of people who delight in beauty who pursue the good things God's given us. We're to encourage one another to delight in the goodness of God in all these things as a priority. Paul writes in Philippians, whatever is true, honourable, just, pure, whatever is lovely, anything commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Do these things. This should shape how we use our time. A lot of our time is used in sleep, work, and caring for our families. I get that. That's like the majority of most of our time, sleep, work, and caring for our our families. But in truth, we have time beside that. Some of us have a lot of time beside that. But even, you know, for myself, I have four young kids. I have my job. I need eight hours sleep a night. Even I have a significant number of hours a week to spend outside of those primary duties. And we're called to be a people who spend our time well in these life-giving, restorative ways. Like, if you ever got the impression that being a really devout follower of Jesus meant that all your spare time was to be spent reading the Bible and praying, then let me deliver you from that lie this morning. A lot of our time, we're to get on with enjoying the things God gives us to enjoy. And research shows quite clearly, it's, you know, again, it's name, this, way, this will be familiar to you, that all of those things I've mentioned are linked with good mental health, aren't they? Exercise, being in nature, being creative, enjoying beauty, eating well, all these things. Because we're holistic beings, as Tim preached about in the first week, all these things are good for our minds. And yet, when we actually look at how, as a culture, we spend our time, we don't spend our time on these things, really as a whole. Obviously individuals do, but you, I'm talking communally. All this mind's communal, isn't it? It's corporate. We as a culture don't spend our time on these things. We spend it on screens. That's the truth. That's the research. I'm sorry to bring it up again because I know Adrian's preached on it when he preached about technology. I remember David Faulkner, who's normally there. Oh, he's at the back. Ooh. <laughs> David Faulkner spoke about smartphones. So I 
I'm, I, well, I'm, I lie. I'm almost sorry to bring it up again, but I'm not really. Because we know how addictive these things are, aren't they? Like, I struggle, I struggle enough just with being on my laptop too much. I'd be dead with a smartphone. We know how addictive these things are, but we need to face the truth. A large um, national survey in America, um, a psychology journal, 2016, uh, found that after one hour a day of use, any more hours of daily screen time were associated with lower psychological well-being, including less curiosity, lower self-control, more distractibility, more difficulty making friends, less emotional stability, being more difficult to care for, inability to finish tasks. Among 14 to 17-year-olds, high users of screens were twice as li- more than twice as likely to have been diagnosed with depression, anxiety, treated by a mental health professional, or be on um, medication for a psychological issue in the last year. Our culture has totally lost the grip of these realities. Our culture tells a story, the technology story, is that technology is good because it's useful and because it's entertaining. So it's fine. And also now, and it's normal. That's the story. The biblical worldview says technology is good when and only when it serves human flourishing. It's a great servant, terrible master, and it often becomes the master. Last week, um, driving, back, driving back from the Alpha Weekend away, actually, uh, I was on the road um, late on Saturday night. I heard a paediatrician come on the radio and explain um, about how tablet and smartphone technology should be heavily limited for children and young people. What was really interesting to me is he said, um, he said actually, the research shows that the negative impacts are exactly the same for adults. But in our culture, we feel we have a duty of care for children so we report these things for children, but we don't have a duty of care for adults, so we just don't talk about it. But he says, actually, the research shows the impact's exactly the same. <clears throat> he was clear. The increased use of smartphones is making us more illiterate, less able to concentrate, less able to handle complexity, make us more lonely, more detached from reality, the reality of our bodies, of our time, of our world. There's a book on the bookstall at the back, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. Might be worth a read. What struck me this week preparing is the research shows it's also contributing to family breakdown, which I hadn't clocked before. But the research shows that families are spending far more time in the same location, but doing things on their own. And that's impacting the relational health of families. 2015, again, journal research, psychological journal, shows that out of the average of six and a half hours of family time a day, that kids and parents are together, or at least with one parent. The average family spent five and a half of those six and a half hours um, having alone together time, is what they call it now, where you're kind of together in the same place, but you're alone because you're doing different things. Basically, phone and TV. And there's a loss of relational connection that's, that's easy to that. Again, there is no condemnation here. I'm not throwing stones. Who doesn't struggle with addiction to screens? I don't think I know anyone. Who doesn't wish it was easier to change? It was just easier to to be different. But that's why we need one another. 
Like, good luck to you if you think you're going to crack that on your own. That's why we need one another. We need to be a community where we shape different norms, different priorities, different ways we spend our time. Couldn't we grow to become a people who encourage one another to get out? Who encourage one another out of our screens, into art galleries, into learning instruments, to go walking, take up sport, creative hobbies, to play games with like real people that are there in front of you, you can touch, to enjoy cooking and these sort of things, to do the things that bring us life and health. I think we can do that. I think we can do that for one another if we want to. What I don't think we can do is each individually go home and massively change our habits. I think we won't do that. I think the only way we can do this is if we create different culture amongst us rather than trying to deal with it individually. Anyway, if we do that, I think that we'll be helping one another towards better mental health. So I'm going to finish, really. Um, We can't... I just want, I wanted to say all that because I don't think we can continue to accept the lie that just technology is neutral and just because it's normal, it's fine. It isn't. The kind of impact of these things on you is not neutral. And um, I don't want us to keep shrugging our shoulders about these things as if it doesn't matter. But I'd love us to care for one another and to grow into all we're created to be. That's what I'd love. I'd love to see us flourish. I'd love to see us create a different culture. So there you go. I skimmed the surface of of a few crucial areas where I think that what's normal in our culture is really destructive to our mental health. And I've tried to show how we have an opportunity as, as a local church and also as the church to create different norms, to be a part of a people creating a different culture. I haven't tried to be comprehensive And there's loads of other areas I could have spoken about, but I haven't. Um, And as I said many times, no one's throwing stones here. But I do hope I've been blunt. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't... We can't keep living the way we're living as a culture and expect our mental health to improve. I, I I hope I've been blunt. But we're called to be in the world, but not of it, Right? We're called to be different. And that applies not just to traditionally spiritual issues, but to the whole of life. So, here's my plea for you, is don't accept the norm as normal. That's my plea. Don't accept what's normal as normal. Don't accept the stories our culture tells us, but let's swim against the tide, eh? Let's be different. Let's help one another to pursue a different way. The way we were created to live, I think, the way of Jesus. So, um, should we have one more? Is there one more, one more song? Where's the, where's the guys? I know it's a bit late. Should we have one more song? All right. <clears throat> what are you singing, Darren? <laughs> Not, incubus. Not Incubus. No, no, no. We'll save that for tonight at the Advent launch. Shall I pray for us and then we'll sing and then, you know, we'll think on these things. <clears throat> Lord, I pray for us that um, we would capture a vision to be different, not just for the sake of being different, like we need to kind of stand out to boost our self-esteem, 
Allow us capture a vision for being different because we want people to be free. We want life to the full. We want to see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. We want to live as the people you've called us to live. So I pray, Lord, um, give us a desire for something more than our culture offers. Help us to face the truth, to take it to you, receive your forgiveness and the gift of your Holy Spirit to help us to change. And may we serve one another in calling one another on to life and freedom. And I pray, um, just as we close the mental health series, that you would help us to hold in good balance all that's been said, Lord, in all four weeks. Help us to know what is truly true. For the truth sets us free. listening to this podcast from Amblecote Community Church. For more information about who we are, what we believe and how you can get involved, check out our website amblecotecc.org.uk.